Welcome to the 63rd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books of Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a wide range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertpearlmd.com. Based on listener feedback, beginning with this episode, we'll be moving our Fixing Healthcare podcast series from Sunday night to Tuesday night. That will allow listeners to hear it in the middle of the work week rather than wait for the weekend. Robbie, given how much has happened since our last show relative to medicine overall, and this week's podcast will focus on COVID for the first half, but then reserve the second half for more general news. But first, as we do for each program, let's begin with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the biggest news is around the newest Omicron variant B.5 and its subtypes. This strain is now the dominant one in the United States. It accounts for over half of all cases, and that percentage is likely to rise with time. Combining BA.5 and BA.4, these two strains now represent the overwhelming majority of new infections. For this reason, the FDA has recommended that the manufacturers of COVID-19 vaccines beginning this fall include mRNA-specific to the dozens of new mutations in Omicron's spike proteins. As we've said on Coronavirus the Truth for over a year, this process of continual mutation and survival of the most transmissible is a scientific inevitability. What's a little different this time is how the current mutants can break through the immunity created by the original vaccine and the immunity resulting from previous infection. And with the rapidly increasing number of cases, there's been a small but significant increase in the number of patients requiring hospitalizations and going on to die. However, neither the number of hospitalizations nor deaths are anywhere near where they were previously. A new study from London, England of 17,500 patients found that unlike patients infected with previous variants for whom loss of smell and taste were frequent early signs of COVID-19, with Omicron, most people now are complaining of sore throat, 58%, headache, 49%, and cough, 40%. Loss of smell was only described by 10%. In other news, the FDA issued emergency use authorization for the new Novavax coronavirus vaccine. That makes it the fourth one after Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J. The federal government has purchased over 3 million doses with the hope that some people afraid to take one of the mRNA vaccines will now roll up their sleeves for this more traditional one. To that end, the CDC has authorized the use of Novavax vaccine for primary immunization in adults over the age of 18. In a prior show, we discussed in detail the differences among these vaccines. The data submitted to the FDA shows Novavax to be 90% effective. And given the emergency approval, we can assume that the fears about this vaccine having a higher association with myocarditis is less concerning for adults over the age of 18. Although deaths from Omicron are down 
compared to earlier this year, the high transmissibility of the virus affects people's lives. As an example, at the recently completed, completed Wimbledon tennis tournament, the one won by Novak Djokovic, three of the top 20 seated men had to withdraw because they became infected. A question we've received from several listeners is about rebound COVID after people take Paxlovid. Despite many reports and broad media coverage of this problem, including, as I know you remember, Jeremy, Dr. Fauci experiencing it, a Mayo Clinic study found that rebound is relatively infrequent. In a parallel study, the CDC reported that rebound after Paxlovid happens in no more than 10% of cases. Though no one can be sure about the process by which it occurs, some scientists hypothesized that the drug is so effective that it rapidly reduces the viral count and therefore inhibits the immune response of the patient. As a result, when the pills are stopped after five days, virus persists and it replicates, and that causes disease to progress and symptoms to recur. As such, what people experience isn't a new infection, but a persistence of the old one, an infection that had not been fully eliminated. This has led, has led some public health leaders to suggest that people be given a longer course of treatment with the drug. But so far, there hasn't been any change in the CDC's recommended treatment protocol. More specifically, in the Mayo Clinic study, the researchers followed 493 patients given the five-day oral treatment regime. They documented rebound symptoms in only four individuals, or less than 1%. And the symptoms that developed were mild, and they resolved without any additional treatment. The authors of this study, and it was published in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases, acknowledged that one limitation of the research was that only a few participants were immunocompromised. You know, it's easy to understand why in a cohort of patients, unable to mount a strong immune response, rebound would be more problematic than the general population, since once the pills were stopped, severe illness might develop. Robbie, as you predicted multiple times over the past year and mentioned at the start of this podcast today, it's likely that an updated mRNA vaccine will come to market this fall. Can you tell listeners a bit more about it and what's likely to happen? Sure, Jeremy. You know, with this new variants of Omicron, particularly the BA.4 and BA.5 that we mentioned, the current vaccines that were based on the protein structure of the first coronavirus are becoming less effective at at least preventing infection and allowing breakthrough infections to occur. Although they still work to help people avoid severe disease and death, with each new strain, the danger grows that the immunity that people now have will be inadequate to prevent individuals from becoming very sick. You can think about this challenge as being similar to knowing someone from your past and trying to recognize them today. Think about it, if you went to elementary school with them, you'd find it much harder to identify when you saw them, that them as individuals you knew than if you attended college with them. And if over time they had dyed their hair or now wore glasses, you'd find it even more difficult. The growing number of mutations of the current variant, the mutations that are increasing over time, make it harder for our immune systems to recognize and thereby respond to the current strains than they could to the original ones. For that reason, the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee of the FDA voted 19 to two 
to recommend an Omicron-specific update to the COVID boosters, and that it be rolled out within the next few months. Of course, that still means that Pfizer and Moderna need to manufacture and test one, and it remains unclear the exact mRNA content that they will include. Potentially, they'll have one that includes both and combines both the past strains with the present ones. And regardless of the choices they make, the coronavirus will continue to mutate and look different in the future than it does at present. Although much work remains to be done before there is a vaccine with FDA approval, the probability is high that a next generation vaccine will come in the fall and anyone who has yet to be vaccinated and boosted would be wise to take it. Probably a listener wanted to know if there's any data on what happened to patients in hospitals during the height of the pandemic who were there for other problems besides COVID. Jeremy, the healthcare problems created by the pandemic, as we both know, go way beyond the million deaths from the virus itself. We've talked about the rise in drug overdoses, the preventive services that were skipped and the mental health difficulties created. Now data published in the Journal of the American Medical Association demonstrate what happened to people undergoing surgical procedures. And the results, they are distressing. Researchers from the University of Rochester School of Medicine used the CDC National Health Care Safety Network data system to compare the odds of patients dying in hospitals with very high COVID-19 burdens versus patients in facilities with low burdens. They looked at surgical outcomes in 2.9 million cases done in 677 hospitals from March to May, 2020. And they found that mortality rate was 38% higher in the high COVID burden hospitals compared to the lower ones. Of course, it's a problem to figure out exactly why this difference occurred. The researchers hypothesized that there were two big factors. First, patients may have come to receive care later in their clinical course for fear of becoming infected in facilities with high number of cases. Or second, they might just have found it harder to access timely treatment in the hospitals with the highest number of cases. Although it's not possible to be certain the reason for the poor outcomes, one thing that is clear is that the negative consequences from this virus were immense and they extended far beyond infections themselves. Robbie, in a recent Forbes article, you said you thought that most people were putting COVID in the rearview mirror of their mind. Is that happening? Jeremy, the newest survey from Axios affirms this view. They asked 960 US adults between the dates of July 15th and July 18th, quote, what is your top concern related to COVID-19 right now? 27% said spreading the virus to people who are at higher risk of serious illness. 17% said developing long COVID. 19% were most worried about being hospitalized due to COVID-19 and only 13% said dying from COVID-19. Although when I wrote the article, I was directionally confident and correct about what would happen. I am surprised at how much lower the fears that are currently being reported are compared to what I would have predicted. 
And that nonchalance will make it very hard for public health officials to convince Americans to get the new vaccine, assuming it becomes available this fall. In addition, I was surprised by a second part of the survey. Among responders, nearly nine in 10 said they didn't think our nation would be rid of COVID during their lifetime. Again, directionally, this was clear. The magnitude of those who had accepted the endemic nature of the virus at this point, to me, was unexpected. And I think the same is probably true for other experts in this area. Finally, consistent with what we've said on coronavirus, the truth, 46% of Americans say they've had or suspect that they had COVID at some point. This is far higher than public health experts report and emphasizes the breadth of viral spread. Robbie, let me close this part of the podcast by getting an update from you on what's new relative to young kids. Jeremy, as we predicted in prior episodes, uptake of the vaccine in children six months to five years has been slow. Of the 19.5 million kids in this age group, fewer than 400,000 have received their first shot since the vaccine was given emergency approval by the FDA one month ago. On one hand, some observers aren't concerned by this slow uptake since they thought parents would rely on pediatricians to give the shots. And that's a process of making an appointment, getting seen, often having the summer physicals done necessary for school, a process that takes much longer than at large vaccination centers. However, most are disappointed since policy experts thought that there was a large pent up demand and that there would be a flood of interest. And as we just said, that hasn't been the case. For comparison, this 2% vaccination rate pales in comparison to the 15% of children aged five to 11 who received the shot within three weeks of authorization as soon as the FDA and CDC had given their approval inside this age cohort. With higher transmissibility and breakthrough infections from Omicron happening at an accelerating pace, unvaccinated kids pose a risk to grandparents and other household members who are older, who are stricken with chronic disease, or for whatever reason, have an immunocompromised system. For this reason, vaccinating children in this young age group takes on an importance beyond the actual risk of serious infection in all of these situations. And since families vary greatly in who lives in the house, how often they see relatives, the age of the different individuals, a one size fits all approach to issues like vaccination for the youngest children, that proves impossible. Parents hesitant to vaccinate their young children will need to weigh their concerns for their child against the dangers that an unvaccinated kid poses to other loved ones, and each family will have to figure out the optimal choice for itself. But let me ask you, Jeremy, what are you hearing from friends who are parents of kids and who are educators in our schools about the impact that COVID has had, and what solutions are people considering? 
Robbie, I have many friends and family members with young children and also friends and family that are educators. I recently had a discussion with a woman who's a school counselor. Uh, we talked about the massive increase in children dealing with depression, child abuse, alcoholic parents, children dealing with parental divorce or parental job loss. She said she has very serious concerns for the long-term impact uh, the handling of COVID will have on these young children, a negative impact we will be seeing for years to come. I have friends who have told me their children could not handle Zoom school or where one parent had to quit their job or get a different worse paying job so that one of them could be home with the children during the school hours. One of my close friends is a teacher who quit teaching so that she could homeschool her children as she thought she could provide them better education than the public schools. Her children are still being homeschooled to this day. She told me way more people are homeschooling now than uh, she could have ever imagined. Uh, she has former colleagues that are still active teachers and they told her that a lot of children are way behind the educational benchmarks that they should have met by now. Many classes are stuck helping children catch up instead of teaching kids at where they should be. I know the teachers unions will likely not be on board with this idea, but I think over the next few years, we should really extend the school year into summer and expand summer school programs. Perhaps we should even make summer school mandatory for children who are unable to reach certain benchmarks. I know it sounds cliche to say, but children are our future and we need to do everything we possibly can to get them back to where they should be from an educational standpoint. Robbie, let's shift now to some of the items relative to other events in medicine. One of the biggest ones was the Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. What are some of the medical issues it, would, it could produce? As you know, Jeremy, SCOTUS overturned the longstanding national guarantee that women had the right to make the decisions they felt best for themselves and their families when it came to abortion. As a result, there will now be 50 different laws, many of which will have profound impacts on both women themselves and the physicians caring for them. One example is the routine prenatal screening of women early in their pregnancy. According to experts from the Mayo Clinic and Case Western Reserve University, some states may prevent any woman thought to be considering pregnancy termination from knowing the results of her ultrasounds and laboratory testing for fetal anomalies. And OBGYN doctors who specialize in vitro fertilization or IVF will face immense challenges if every fertilized egg is considered by state law to be a person, destruction could be prosecuted as murder. What else do doctors fear will happen to them? It's important for listeners to understand the problems of pregnancy for many women and how this decision will generate risk for doctors. As an example, a common life-threatening medical problem in women who become pregnant is when the fertilized egg gets trapped in the fallopian tube and never makes it to the uterus. According to the March of Dimes, this occurs as often as 2% of the time. As the fetus develops in the fallopian tube, it grows larger in size. The fallopian tube itself can't expand as the uterus normally does. And as a result, it ruptures, threatening the life of the mother. Treating an ectopic pregnancy requires prescribing medications that are very similar, if not identical to those given to end an intrauterine pregnancy or it requires removing the tube itself along with the developing fetus. Based upon many of the highly restrictive laws already passed by some states, either or both of these could be considered a criminal action and could lead to murder charges against the doctor. Even in those states that include an exemption when the mother's life is at risk, it now would become the job of the doctor to prove that was the case. And when it comes to jury trials, 
Logic doesn't always come out on top. Knowing this, physicians may be slow to intervene, missing the window to resolve the crisis in a timely fashion. As Lawrence Gostin, a law professor at Georgetown University said, quote, at best it will make physicians hesitant to save the life of a woman, at worst, outright refusal to do so. Shockingly, this is already beginning to happen. According to an article in the Dallas Morning News, some hospitals in Texas have been refusing to treat patients with serious pregnancy complications for fear of violating the state's abortion ban. And the Texas Medical Association has sent a letter pointing out the difficulty of caring for women with these life-threatening medical problems. In fact, according to the report, one hospital even recommended that doctors wait until the fallopian tube ruptures to avoid criminal concerns. Another medical problem that doctors now face is providing medical care to women who experience a miscarriage. Sometimes, particularly later in pregnancy, when a miscarriage happens, the uterus doesn't completely expel all of the fetal contents. As a result, persistent bleeding and risk of infection ensue, at least until a doctor performs a procedure to remove the remaining tissue. Since the treatment of cleaning out the uterus of retained tissue is almost identical to what doctors do to terminate a pregnancy, physicians may hesitate to intervene when it's safest for a woman. Without question, scheduling the procedure in a hospital's operating room for a pregnant woman will bring scrutiny and possible criminal charges. And in some states, law enforcement and prosecutors will be demanding data from big tech companies, particularly in circumstances following a miscarriage. This is often a time of great sorrow for a woman and her family. And to find yourself under investigation and to have your personal history relative to period tracking apps and Amazon purchases being looked at by a district attorney, to me, as a physician, that seems cruel. Moreover, according to India McKinney, Director of Federal Affairs for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, officials would not even need a warrant to do this since this data already is sold by data brokers. And as you know, there was just the case of the 10-year-old who was raped in Ohio and had to travel to Indiana for an abortion. The doctor who cared for the child completed all the appropriate reports to state agencies on time and police arrested the perpetrator of the crime. Yet this physician has been hounded, accused of making up the story and viciously attacked on social media. I fear that the problems that exist in this arena are only starting to surface and will grow significantly in the near future. Robbie, any other observations of the impact of this ruling? Jeremy, the biggest impact will be on poor mothers, individuals who find it hard to obtain a legal abortion. For many of them going to another state to have the abortion and finding someone to care for their kids when they're gone will be extremely difficult. Some will cut corners. They'll find a way to obtain an illegal abortion, and invariably this will lead to the types of horrific medical problems we saw before Roe with life-threatening uterine infections and tragic avoidable deaths. Already among women aged 18 to 29, 62% of them, according to an Axios survey, say that state abortion laws will influence where they live, with 36% saying they'll influence them a lot, and 26% saying somewhat. 
For men, the total was 53%, with 25% saying it would influence where they live a lot, and 28% saying it would influence where they live somewhat. As we discussed in our most recent Diving Deep podcast, the Supreme Court has traditionally applied the principle of stare decisis, the concept of not making radical changes that go against longstanding precedent. They did this as a means to avoid creating this type of massive and life-ending disruption. It is clear that the majority of justices were hell-bent on making the change, no matter the medical consequences. What's not clear is whether the court will also restrict people's rights in areas such as birth control and gender issues. Already the Alabama Attorney General has asked the courts to allow the state to enforce a law banning gender-affirming medical care for trans youths. And he specifically cited this recent Supreme Court case, arguing that the medical treatments for gender affirmation also aren't explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. He argued that in the same way the 14th Amendment was ruled not to apply to abortion, so it should be with gender-affirming care. As increasingly proving to be the case, Alabama's SB 184 threatens criminal prosecution for any doctor who attempts to provide this medical treatment to trans youths. Finally, half of all US physicians being trained to become obstetrician gynecologists will be in residency in states that have or are planning to ban abortions. As a result, they're unlikely to gain enough experience to treat a variety of medical problems, problems that require a similar operative approach. Already the National OBGYN Residency Oversight Organization has said that it will allow doctors to be certified in OBGYN based on doing these procedures virtually, a very poor substitute for hands-on experience. As a result in the future, many women who require medical care for severe uterine bleeding will go on to have major complications and some are likely to die as a result. Again, as a physician, I find the myopic view of the Supreme Court incredibly dangerous. I don't debate the legal ruling, the constitutionality issues, the points that lawyers need to be examining. But when I see it through the lens of the impact that it's gonna have on women and the likelihood of complications, both for those pregnant, those who are not pregnant, those who are wanting to terminate a pregnancy, those who are wanting to keep a pregnancy, I think, the courts acted with undue haste. On a related topic, a listener wrote and asked for more detail on the cost of healthcare, the topic we covered in detail in the last Coronavirus The Truth podcast. She said she was wanting to become pregnant and wondered how much to expect the delivery would be. Any estimates? Jeremy, I was surprised when I read a report from the Kaiser Family Foundation, a not-for-profit organization unrelated to Kaiser Permanente, on this exact topic. The cost today is almost $19,000, with the average woman insured through her employer having to pay $3,000 out of pocket. Researchers looked at claims data from the IBM market scan and counter database of enrollees insured in private health plans. These are health plans through large employers, and they examined the years 2018 to 2020 to avoid confusing the data with information specific to COVID. They further refine the numbers by noting that a vaginal delivery costs an average $14,768, while a C-section was $26,280 with $3,214 additional dollars paid by the woman 
out of pocket. You've talked about the inexcusable problem of excess maternal deaths on our Fixing Healthcare podcast in the past. What happened in this area during the pandemic? Jeremy, this area of maternal deaths, it's terrible that having already been the worst among the industrialized nations before COVID, the U.S. became even poorer in outcomes over the past two years. Researchers looked at maternity mortality rates per 100,000 live births between 2018 and 2020 compared to the same information 2020 to 2022. What they found was that maternal mortality which is already higher than any other industrialized country, it rose during the pandemic by 33%, an increase of 74% among Hispanic mothers, 40% among black mothers, and 17% for non-Hispanic white mothers. The authors of the study point to a variety of factors that happened during the pandemic, including limited access to, and delay of medical care overall, and the rise of diabetes and hypertensive disorders that occurred over the same period of time. And of course, we know that Black and Hispanic individuals often worked in jobs that required them to travel on buses and subways where they were exposed to COVID infection at a much higher level than white workers, many of whom could work from home. As the lead author said about the findings, quote, the pandemic created a new disparity and it exacerbated existing ones. So along those lines, Jeremy, let me ask you, healthcare disparities are increasing as a result of various stresses on the healthcare system, including the coronavirus pandemic, growing financial difficulties for lower and even middle-class families and political uncertainty. How big a problem is this and what approaches do you think could work from a national perspective? Robbie, this is a massive problem. I think uh, one thing the pandemic made very clear to lower and middle income people is that there is a very clear difference between the white collar communities that were able to work remotely during the pandemic, did not suffer much, if any, wage loss or job loss, had great health care, and the more blue collar communities who suffered massive layoffs, did not have remote work options, and are struggling more with inflation currently than those of the upper class. The biggest concern and issue that I am seeing from people is that as inflation continues at an unprecedented rate and as healthcare and insurance costs continue to go up, more and more lower income blue collar type people who have insurance with high deductible plans are scared to use the insurance that they have because they cannot afford it. They're not going to the doctor when they should, and thus things like cancer are not being caught when they should be, among other things. You also have people in rural areas who may have no access to real high-speed internet or are very far away from any of the specialists that they may need to see. One idea I have, and I do not know how realistic it is, would be for the federal government to have a free telehealth urgent care type service for all. This could be set up a variety of ways, but this would be a massive help to people who need to be seen for minor things, but are afraid they cannot afford it, or even just want to know if something they have is something they should go to the emergency room or be seen for. Again, I do not know how realistic something like this is or how we could even set it up, but I think something like this would be a massive help to people who are struggling financially in these difficult times. What other medical topics have been big in the news? Jeremy, here are a few. First, not only was there the Supreme Court ruling on abortion, but as we discussed in our Diving Deep program last week, 
a major decision on the right of people to carry a concealed weapon. As you know, gun deaths in the U.S. continue to soar, with more people now dying from gun violence each year than car crashes. And guns are now the number one method of suicide in the U.S. Furthermore, intimate partner shootings happen six times more often in homes with guns leading to over 4,000 deaths each year. And death by gun violence is now killing more kids than cancer. Second, although the decision has been put on hold through a court action, the FDA is trying to eliminate the sale of Juul products and reduce the quantity of nicotine, smoking's addictive chemical in cigarettes. Both offer the opportunity to diminish the risk for lung cancer and a variety of other medical problems, including heart disease and multiple cancers in addition to lung cancer. Finally, we're seeing the impact of an ever hotter climate. Europe is experiencing temperatures higher than any time in the recorded past, with England reaching 104 degrees, almost three degrees higher than the previous record in 2019. And few homes or businesses have air conditioning. In total, there have been more than 1,000 deaths across Europe, affecting just about every nation. Putting the three stories together, I'm struck by how deeply we feel about a single death when it's someone we know and love, but how our minds fail to register a thousand deaths from heat, 4,000 deaths from intimate partner violence, or 45,000 deaths from gun violence. What to do about each of these threats? That's complex. Balancing people's rights with actions that are proven to save lives and avoid societal harm is messy and contentious. Where the government's role begins and ends versus individual responsibility is a constant debate in our country. But as a physician, I hope that as a country, we can take the actions needed at every opportunity to save lives. Death of a loved one, that's not just a statistic. It's not just a number, it's a personal tragedy. As a doctor, I've seen profound suffering on the faces of way too many loved ones. And I recognize that in each of them, the pain of loss never leaves them. Ravi, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, this month we celebrated two major technological anniversaries, both of which provide massive opportunities for healthcare. As listeners know, our Fixing Healthcare series is now season seven, and it's on breaking the rules. And one way to break rules is through the introduction of revolutionary new technology. 15 years ago this month, in 2007, Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone. Up to then, a phone was solely a device to speak with someone not in your direct vicinity. The biggest changes in the previous decade were the cordless phone and answering machines. Now, what appeared to be a phone, it could do functions like taking pictures, sending text messages, connecting to the internet, and had a powerful memory function. The introduction of the iPhone could have been a massive game changer for medicine. Imagine how it might have facilitated the relationship between doctors and patients, connecting through text messages, video communication, and the exchange of digital images. Imagine how healthcare could have gone from being delivered locally to being provided by the best doctors anywhere in the US, or for that matter, across the world. 
the smartphone could have been a powerful way for physicians to educate patients, focus on prevention and improve disease management. But except for a relatively short time during the pandemic, almost none of that has happened at anywhere near the scale it might have been. It's as though Gutenberg created the device that would allow the printing of books and promote universal education, and the world continued to choose to rely on handwritten texts, limiting books to the wealthy elite. As the slowness of doctors to embrace the power embedded in the iPhone has demonstrated, breaking the rules in healthcare proves extremely difficult. The other advance we celebrate this month is the 10-year anniversary of a technology called CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, first published in the journal Science 10 years ago in 2012. CRISPR stands for Clustered, Regularly Interspersed, Short, Palindromic Repeats. This technology is both incredibly brilliant and relatively straightforward. It was discovered a decade ago based on the laboratory research of two women scientists, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuelle Charpentier, who were jointly awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their work in 2020. Based on a process that bacteria use to identify viral invaders and cut out the offending DNA, these researchers realized a similar approach could be applied to people with congenital genetic diseases. In the most simplified explanation, a piece of laboratory created RNA is constructed by scientists to match a piece of the problematic DNA in a human and is inserted into cells. Once it's there, it then identifies the exact location of the flawed gene, such as the one leading to cystic fibrosis. A protein that's introduced with the RNA then separates the two strands of the DNA helix and it locks the RNA into place like two Legos clinging to each other. A second associated protein then cuts and cleaves the short abnormal segment of the DNA. Normal DNA is then inserted into the, into the cell and the divided ends are stitched back together with the correct DNA in place by the cell's normal repair mechanism. This opportunity to apply this to a range of genetic diseases is immense. Unlike with the potential application of the iPhone, doctors love the potential CRISPR provides. In fact, the risks of people breaking the rules and rushing to apply the technology today in ways that could produce massive harm, it's forced medical societies to condemn scientists who move forward. And they've put up tall barriers to prevent the use of this technology outside the laboratory at this time. The reason for the difference in enthusiasm in medical practice for the two technologies is the culture of medicine. CRISPR aligns with what doctors value. It is disease focused. It elevates the doctors who use it to heroes and healers. In contrast, texting video, texting video and email tools, which primarily make care more convenient for patients, but replace the sanctity of the doctor's office, often they're seen as insignificant. Make no doubt, 
50 years from now, CRISPR may make dozens of diseases that kill people today an historical footnote, and that will be wonderful. But the potential of iPhones and video, it's already here. But as a profession, doctors are failing to embrace what is possible now. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, facinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and families. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.